0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the idea center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalathal, senior director of NED's International Forum, recording from our studio in
1: Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, vice president for studies and analysis at the endowment.
0: Transnational kleptocracy is behind many of the world's most pressing problems, including dictatorship and the corruption of governance institutions and democracies, as well as terrorism, human rights abuses, war, and famine. While the exact mechanics may differ from country to country, a kleptocratic pattern of steal, stash, and spend repeats itself around the world, crossing borders in ways that law enforcement agencies cannot easily follow as money moves inside and outside different jurisdictions. Kleptocrats rely on international financial and communications networks to loot their countries, hide their ill-gotten gains elsewhere, and launder their reputations. So it's only fitting that a powerful response to these kleptocratic networks has emerged from within civil society. That response is networked, collaborative journalism, which can track kleptocratic cash across borders and comb through data to bring hidden connections to light. In recent years, investigative initiatives and reporting projects such as the Panama Papers have helped shine a light on how stolen wealth flows across borders. Yet because these collaborative efforts rely on both formal and informal networks of journalists, often working for different outlets and in very different circumstances around the world, they can also be challenging to design
1: and implement. Here to share her experience and expertise on this subject, We're pleased to welcome Miranda Petrucic to the Power 3.0 podcast for today's discussion on investigating transnational kleptocracy. Miranda is an award-winning journalist who's an investigative reporter and regional editor for the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP, where she's focused on Central Asia, the Balkans, and the Caucasus. Welcome to the show, Miranda.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Miranda, so you've
0: been with OCCRP since it began in 2006, and... I think some of our listeners may not be familiar with the initiative, other than maybe having come across some of the great investigative reporting that you've been doing. So could you describe how the OCCRP model works to link journalists, researchers, and media outlets across borders? And if you have examples of some of the stories that you've done, that would be great.
2: So I'll tell you how OCCRP was actually started. Um, There were two reporters, Drew Sullivan in Bosnia and Paul Radu in Romania. And they were both independently covering a story of human trafficking or sex trafficking. And in Bosnia, uh, Drew was able to speak with victims, but he could never find out who were the people who brought them there. In Romania, Paul could talk to traffickers, but he didn't have access to victims because they were in another country. So one day they met and they started talking and realized the only way they can tell the full story is if they work together in each of them talk to people in their own parts of the world and that's how OCCRP was born in in, from the need to collaborate because that's the only way you can develop these stories and you can really find the truth so OCCRP is really about reporters working on cross-border investigations and building networks and sharing the skills but also sharing resources and tools and building the tools that we need for our investigation and giving reporters opportunity to just do what they're best at, which is investigating and working on stories.
0: You know, I think it's terrific that some of these stories have achieved such prominence in recent years, and you can think of all these really important, hard-hitting packages like the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers and so on that have really gone into details about the ways that cash flows across borders. But maybe bringing it back to your example of how Paul and Drew first met, it really does come down to the human cost of kleptocracy. And this is something I know you've been thinking about a lot, about how to convey the stories of kleptocracy to both local audiences and global audiences. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you're thinking about making this a fascinating story for people that might not otherwise Realize this dimension of it that don't necessarily realize that it's not just about banks or shell companies and so on.
2: The problem with uh, global kleptocracy is actually that it's so huge if we're talking about billions of dollars and if you talk to somebody on the street and you say, hey, do you have any idea what billions of dollars is? they'll immediately shut down. If you mention like ten thousand, they'll be like, he stole ten thousand. And I think that's really the problem we have um, in investigative reporting. A lot of our stories are about billions and billions of dollars that are looted. And it is very hard to present that number to a public. And that they actually can listen and say, wow, that's a lot of money. You know, very often, uh, you know, when we have stories like Panama Papers, what they talk about is, you know, a number of very dirty characters. You know, we have crooks, we have their lawyers, we have criminal service industry, which is helping them steal the money. But very rarely we talk about the humans who are affected because uh, there is not a single human who is affected. It's the whole country that is affected and very often a number of countries because the dirty money corrupts the countries where it goes. So it's not just about Kazakhstan or Zimbabwe, it's also about the London, it's also about Miami, places where this dirty money finds their way to bribe local people and, and, and you know, bring the dirt on. So, uh, you know, when we report about these stories, what I try to think is, why should people care? And I think very often as journalists, we actually don't ask ourselves that question and we don't think of, in our reporting why um, somebody in Bosnia should care, but also not just somebody in Bosnia, for example, why somebody here in the US should care about the corruption in another country. And this is something we need to start answering and reporting and actually finding uh, people in these countries who are all affected by corruption. And as as a journalist, it's also about how we tell our stories and very often we'll tell stories about you know with a lot of names of companies of people of lawyers but we will not tell a story about you know person who was trafficked or the person who couldn't get the medical service because the money was stolen and the country couldn't afford it and we also often don't think about what people understand we're all in a rush so we really need to start thinking about different ways to present our stories and our findings and sometimes it's just a tweet and sometimes it's a Facebook video or Twitter video where people can see what the zist of story is within one minute. And sometimes is writing a story for those who actually can make a difference in terms of policymakers, politicians, other um, members of civil society who can actually take actions in our story. Our challenge today is really to design our stories in a way that they will meet different audiences and that we will serve all these audiences. They will all find what they need to make a um, informed decision.
1: And on the subject of um, reaching audiences, you've mentioned the multi-jurisdictional, multifaceted, complex nature of modern kleptocracy and how you have to cover all these different pieces of the puzzle as a way of helping people see the full picture. But some of the countries that you're working on, for example, the autocracies of Central Asia, some of which are horribly repressive, like Uzbekistan, very difficult to get independent information in those settings. What's your expectation about reaching audiences in those kinds of settings, or is, are you simply aiming towards the places where it's easier to get access to media and therefore make an impression there?
2: It is incredibly important that we report in the countries that are repressive and the countries where you can't get information. We can't just ignore that part of the world and say, oh, wait, it's dictatorship, there's nothing we can do. There's actually a lot we can do. And on one end, there are all this information that we can obtain abroad because, as you have mentioned early on, money crosses border easily. Law enforcement doesn't. But every time the money crosses the border, there is a paper trail. And as a journalist, we can actually obtain this paper trail and follow the money. And, and, and how do we reach, you know, local people? I think through local news outlets. And I think we need to develop these powerful networks where, you know, when we do a story, there should be a whole support network in the region where we publish the story, who will republish the story or refer to a story. So we need to find a way to basically bring all these groups together where they know us and they know that we do a good job. So they would take our stories and actually do something with it. And I think it's working. And, you know, with Azerbaijan, we have done... Um, a number of investigations, and uh, very often um, channels like Made TV would, you know, do a video that would reach a local audience. And recently, our reporter from Azerbaijan sent us a video, and there was this old woman, she's, she was 80, and there were some protests, and she was shouting, uh, Aliyev stole the money and moved it offshore. And I felt, well, our story has reached this old granny. I don't know how, but she knew that the money went offshore. And, you know, before people of Azerbaijan didn't really know that, you know, we would go to a country to report and they would go, well, you know, I I need to write to my president to help me solve my problem. And yet part of the problem was their president. So I think, think you know, we need to all work together. We have to mobilize and we have to share what we know and spread. The truth in a similar way that now the lies are spread there's so many outlets just copy pasting each other and we need to you know we need to stop competing because there is no one winner there is no breaking news it's it's about bringing the truth to the people and and, and spreading what is going on
1: You mentioned Azerbaijan, it brings to mind um, a very courageous uh, colleague of yours, Khadija Smilova, whose work had a multiplier effect in bringing to light not only the um, extraordinary corruption in her home country, but how that reverberated beyond Azerbaijan's borders. And I think that played an enormously important role in reframing the discussion there. I wonder from your perspective, what you described, Miranda, in terms of the um, efforts to kind of amplify networks in the current environment so that these kleptocratic networks, which have enormous resources behind them, have more competition from the good guys, in essence. What, in your view, uh, still needs to happen to maximize the impact of um, the good networks, if we want to call them those?
2: We need to first get to know each other. Uh, we need to develop trust and, and, you know, the topic of trust is something that uh, keeps reappearing because, unfortunately, in many of these countries, uh, local actors are at risk. And, you know, Hatija is a, a sad example of what can happen when you're targeted by the regime. She has been jailed. Now that she's jailed, the government uh, she was released. the government is trying to starve her family, her all her accounts are blocked. She's not allowed to work. She's not allowed to leave country. So in order to build these networks, you have to develop trust and you have to know each other, so you need to know who are the good actors. And then we need to share. and we need to think outside the box because the sensational st- headlines, you know threats of the others is something that spreads so e- easily. fear spreads so easily. But actually the truth and these difficult topics, you know, people don't want to know about. So what we need to do is immobilize and and have different parts of society. We have to have musicians, you have to have actors, you have to have, you know, uh, uh, professors, you have to have all segments of society talk about particular topic and raise the issue and, you know, bring it to different audiences because young people in the country, they're not interested necessarily in the news, but they are interested in music. So we need to tell them what's going on through music and, you know, we have older generations and, you know, they might trust scientists and we need to have scientists and we have to have professors talk about certain topics and, you know, we need to stop trying to be the first one and actually just work together.
0: I think I've heard it said before that OCCRP is as much a technology company as a a reporting outfit, and that goes to the use of data to tell stories. Can you talk a little bit about how OCCRP both looks at data and then uses it to tell compelling kleptocracy stories in a way that goes beyond just saying, okay, here's an Excel spreadsheet and and here are the numbers? Uh, You know, I think your use of it goes much beyond just individual data points.
2: We are uh, focused on data and part of it is collecting data and collecting data from uh, all kinds of available sources. We are very much focused on following the money. So what we collect are business records, we collect leaks of money transactions because with the journalism, you know, it's very hard to ma- remember everything in your head. I know when I first look at the document, you know, my brain instinctively look for what I know and what I'm familiar with it. The things that I've never seen before, the names that don't ring a bell, I I just forget about. So what we are trying to do is first collect as much information that is out there, but also put the information we have into data repository that can be searched by other reporters. And as those reporters can find leads in the data sets that I have for their own stories, because as a single reporter, we, you know, there are so many stories to tell. I, I would need 50 lifetimes to to, to, to to do everything I would like to do right now. And what OCCRP is doing with the data, what we're trying to do is get as many people to report and get as many people to investigate and and look into the data. So that's one thing we're trying to build the knowledge. And then with building the knowledge, we're trying to think about the ways that we can tell the stories. And part of it is visualizing the complicated connections. I talked about, you know, people when they see five different offshore companies and so on, they don't want to read that. But if we can develop a visualization tools and and basically present a map for those who are really interested to look into connections and how we figured out something, they can do that. So we are using the data we have in order to tell the complicated parts of our story. And then we use the narrative in the story to uh, draw people to actually read them.
0: It's almost like a a different form of reporting where the data is as important as the story because the data itself also tells a kind of picture if you can visualize it in a certain way.
2: I mean, part of where we are going is trying to do pattern recognition. We're trying to identify what are the signals of bribery or what are the signals of tender fraud and how you can identify that in a large data set. So, for example, one of the patterns is you have a tender which was just won by a company who was incorporated three days before. So, that's something, and, and what we're trying to do is develop these patterns. So, in a way, uh, our data would alert the reporter well, take a look, there's something questionable about this. And it, it's actually amazing because technology really enables us to report quicker. To get to what the story is quicker and of course then you have to do the legwork that we normally do but at least we can get the leads for stories much faster than um, ever before
1: so so much of the work that you're doing is risky it's uh, looking at illicit behavior often large sums of money and resources uh, connected to very powerful people Maybe you can just say a word about the sort of security challenges and the sort of safety issues that are most pressing in this space. Of course, we talked about Khadija Ismailova, who's a terrific example of exactly a certain form of problematic response from powerful actors. But just to give our audience a sense of the um, challenges and risks you find yourself and your colleagues are up against.
2: There are so many risks reporters faced, from the digital risk where every once in a while somebody tries to hack our accounts. And, of course, you can imagine a damage that this would cause. I mean, our sources, you know, colleagues in um, dangerous countries that we're working with. It, it, it would have um, horrific implications. So, we spend a lot of time trying to keep you know, our computer safe, keeping our phone safe, our email account safe, our server safe. But then we also have to worry about the physical safety. We had a reporter who was killed for his work, and you know we've seen several other reporters, even in Europe, a place where this has never happened before, were murdered in the most brutal way. We have, you know, several of our reporters had uh, their apartments broken into and the police has still not found uh, who was responsible for that or, or what was the reason for the break-in. So we are really facing a security challenges and, and the things we never thought we would need to worry about, uh, like a, a reporters having a camera outside their home or having a secure doors. It's becoming a challenge. Another thing we do is we provide our reporters training in surveillance because most reporters before they are killed are surveilled so if we could identify the threat then we can you know we can do something and then a lot of, of what what we try to put our energy is you know if reporter is threatened we try to get them out of the country immediately so we can delay the anger of of the person who is um, who we are reporting about. So uh, all of our stories um, you know as soon as we start reporting we think about these challenges and in some of the countries like Azerbaijan or some of the Central Asian countries but even in Africa and Middle East if we think that something is too dangerous uh, we will often tell a reporter you will, your name will not be in the story story. And then we take precautions. So those we report about never find out who actually worked on that story. And a lot of what we do is also we use the power of network to keep us safe, because one reporter is easy to shut down. But if you have multiple reporters, especially reporters in different countries working on a story, then you can't really stop the story, even if you try to harm one reporter.
0: You know, one thing that occurs to me, hearing you talk about the physical risks and the maybe the security, the digital security risks that are opposed to reporters, there's also legal risks. And that's something that kleptocrats are particularly good at weaponizing the legal system against reporters. Uh, What can be done about that? Or maybe you could talk a little bit about this phenomenon.
2: It's actually outrageous. Uh, London is a capital of libel tourism, uh, which basically means if you are autocrat or if you are, um, you know, dictator or if you're just extremely rich and you got your wealth by stealing money, you basically can pay uh, pay UK lawyers to uh, sue journalists. And the UK legal system is designed in a way that basically they don't dismiss the cases. So as a news organization, you are uh, faced with tremendous cost of defending yourself at UK courts. And one case like that can completely ruin a small news organization. And unfortunately, there's very little done to fix them or to challenge this and we need to put our hands and try to prevent UK being used as a way to stop reporters from publishing stories every time we do a serious story basically we get a letter from several law firms and they're very well known and they always represent bad clients and the letters are if you publish we're going to sue the hell out of you and you you'll never recover and you know we had So far, very good lawyers who would always read our stories, but many news organizations don't have these lawyers. And, you know, sometimes uh, when I talk to people, you know, they're thinking, well, can I defend myself if I'm sued? And is this story worthwhile, uh, me being sued? And in a way that stop people from publishing what they should. You know, US has a very good system in terms of protection of journalistic freedom. But the fact is that, you know, any news organization can be sued in London if their story was read in London.
0: Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Miranda, would you like to go first?
2: I'm reading a fascinating book. It's called The Godfather-in-Law, and it's written by the son-in-law of the former president of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev. And it's kind of fascinating personal account of family, but also the way that, you know, their first million was made so to say. And, you know, always this question of the first million. After the first millions, everything is easy. It gives incredible insight into how kleptocrats work and how they think. And it, it's a good read for anybody trying to understand how these families operate. And Chris, how about you?
1: So I've gotten around to reading a report that was produced by Freedom House titled Freedom in the Media, a Downward Spiral. It's sobering reading, it tracks the trajectory of media freedoms in a number of key respects over the last decade, and if anything, it reflects these cross-currents that are at work on the one hand, there are serious economic challenges, um, state pressures that are being applied to independent media at precisely the time we need vigorous independent media most, and especially investigative reporting, which tends to be the most expensive sort of reporting to do for all the reasons we've discussed on this episode. And so I would um, commend everyone to this report in very succinct way. It communicates some of these uh, significant challenges to independent media that we're uh, seeing on a daily basis.
0: And for me, I'm behind on all my kleptocracy reading, so I'm now tackling a classic of the genre and one that really sets out the thinking behind kleptocracy as it emerged in Russia. It's a book called Putin's Kleptocracy by the late scholar Karen Deweisha, um, who is a widely respected scholar of Russia, whose work we've actually referenced quite a bit here. Uh, It was published in 2014, and it not only describes the circumstances behind Putin's rise, um, it is also a terrific primer on the mechanics of kleptocratic regimes in general. And as an interesting side note, her original publisher in the UK declined to publish the book out of precisely the same concerns that you've highlighted. Uh, Eventually, it was published by Simon & Schuster in the US, and I think it really goes to the examples that you've talked about, the the idea of libel law being used to muffle criticism and dissent um, in authoritarian.
2: In regimes.
1: And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Miranda one time again.
2: Thank you so much.
1: That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend visiting the website of the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, OCCRP, to learn more about their latest investigations. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at thinkdemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalathil and Miranda Petrucic. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on investigating transnational kleptocracy and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.